for April 25th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 721. Must have been my imagination. It's probably just the wind. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging uh, hanging out, hanging out, hanging out. I'm I'm Matt. That's Pete. Pete, I I have uh, I just have I I can't say words anymore. (laughs) So a little bit of context for everybody. We are neck deep in Eurovision and uh, I guess wading out of the other neck deep pool of America vision YouTube coverage. And I think Matt has been doing just recording Eurovision videos for YouTube all afternoon, right? This is your, like your hour four Norway, like Azerbaijan, <laughs> Norway, Azerbaijan. Yeah. Um, Long time listeners may not be aware that overthinking it somehow lucked into being one of the mid tier American outlets for Eurovision coverage. I don't even know why. <laughs> yeah. Why? I mean, yeah. Who, who'd they get to, to when they broadcasted on the logo for half a second? Like Carson Kressley? Forget <laughs> that noise. Why didn't she come to us? The, the overthinking it crew. We've been writing about Eurovision since 2008 before anyone knew what it was. Um, it was part of, you know, it was part of Matt Belinke's cabinet of curiosities and he got us all into it. Now we still write these, uh, we write these little videos, which I do on a green screen. I, I, I nearly said influencer style, but, um, it's not really influencer style, is it? Because like influencers now don't do green screen anymore. The idea of like the sort of, um, I don't know what the, the daily show esque, you know, uh, news set, um, type of, type of YouTube video is, is done. And now it's like people on couches, like talking, mm-hmm. you know, talking straight to camera. Uh, that I feel like that style is more the kind of the vlogger style is more, more prevalent, um, than the highly produced. And, and what we do still looks like an e news, uh, special, <laughs> special report yeah. on, on Eurovision. But yes, I, I did today. I have read off of a prompter. Uh, like 5,000 words about, about Eurovision. Many of them with, with, uh, diacritical marks that I don't fully understand the <laughs> import of. Um, so yeah, I'm a, my, my mouth is, we'll never happier than when we are, we're never, <laughs> never happier. But you, you, uh, I, I'm squarely in the, I'm squarely in the be careful what you wish for zone here because like kind of when we started, when we started standardizing on these, like we, we would all do them in the early days and then kind of like I set up and like went like pro am. I went like semi pro, bro. Yeah. I went, uh, no, what, how to put it? I went prosumer. <laughs> you up the I production went. value. Yeah, a little bit yeah. like by buying, you know, uh, video lights, a bunch of, a bunch of lights and a green screen and like all, you know, a, a fancy SLR, you know, Canon SLR camera. I got the, the 70 DP. You know why? Because it has an autofocus. Uh, not a lot of them have an autofocus because they're, they're professionals. They assume you have a department of, 20, they're professional tools. You should have like 20 people around just to like, you know, make minute adjustments to the, to the focus settings of your lens. Um, but I don't have that. I got the, I got the autofocus one that when I, when I walk into it, it like laser locates me or so it has a range finder and 
does it. And I, I stand in front of this thing and I talk. I don't know if anyone's listening, Pete. I don't know if anyone's on the Matt, other side. Take a breath. Take a breath. I talk oh, you, into you, the void. You're not saying right now. You mean when you record the videos? You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't I don't know what's on the other side of that of that camera. You know, it could be uh it could be a, a whole a whole other universe over there. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. we enjoy uh we enjoy doing them. Uh, and you and then then America went and created a Eurovision type contest itself, the the American Song Contest, which is getting like roundly defeated by what? The Voice. Uh I think uh currently it's airing on on NBC and you've started writing a lot for those. Has it been a fun experience to to sit down every Monday night and produce uh you know, I don't know, produce 250 words of comedy about uh, about every American state and several overseas territories. It, it has been deeply rewarding and I very much enjoyed it. So oh, good. I know. I think that our America, there's no more states to do because now when they go through the playoffs, they're just going to kind of narrow it down and narrow it down. But it's just the same songs over and over again. Right. So you can either follow the horse race, which is not especially interesting. Um, or I guess what? Hope for something new. I feel like we got to revisit it before it's over. But I don't think we want to do the semis, right? No, because there's not. I don't think there's anything new. It's just the same. It's just the semifinalists altogether, rather than being rather than being the qualifiers altogether. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure we'll have anything to add. Though I, I do appreciate that someone from the someone in the comment section in one of our YouTube videos was was like, no, you you have to do them. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. You have to, you know, and that's, I understand that because I myself have the completest urge, you know, Mm -hmm. like I, I could not, I could never own, thank God I've never owned one, uh, volume of like the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, because I would bankrupt myself (laughs) trying to, uh, complete the set. And like, I'm, I'm sure I would be like, I want, I want the same printing, not just the same edition. I want like the yeah. same printing, you know? Uh, and that's, uh, that's just not a good, not a good way to spend your life. But yeah, so that's over on our, that's over on our YouTube channel. And, and, and we've been doing that. And it's nice. I don't know. It's nice to be part of the creator economy. I mean, I'll tell you, Pete, like I, every year when we do this and we haven't done it for two or three years for reasons. And, but like the, the, um, every year when I start this, you know, we start in in February or March or something like that, and and Blinky starts sending me scripts, and I wait. <laughs> you know, I like put off starting on them, and then I have like a backlog of like nine scripts, and kill myself trying to to do them all. I find that like I'm very bad at doing the teleprompter. I'm very bad at reading off the thing, and kind of there's a whole art to it to kind of create the to sort of create the story. You know, to to because you really want to to say sentences in a way where at the beginning at the beginning of the sentence the inflection goes up and at the end of the sentence the inflection goes down you know and you want to create that sort of melody uh where the where the rhythm and the kind of the tune of the sent the sentence um is a is a mirror of the syntax is like a is a complementary structure to the syntax of of the sentence and you get better at doing it on the fly when you do it. So I'm in, you know, I would say I'm in like, I'm back in like journeyman mode. Um, when, I, when I feel like I've gotten good at it again, it'll be time to, it'll be time to stop. That's over on, that's over on YouTube. And I find Pete, and I, I know this is true of you as well, uh, because we talk frequently. Um, the, the, uh, I'm not sure if you were aware. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh I, I find that that YouTube is sort of more and more of my media diet, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've talked before about my, my beloved affable British gentleman who solves Sudokus and restore my faith in an orderly universe. Um, I've started, I've started, uh, watching a father son team who do home improvement projects together. They're actually like general contractors or something. Then like, you know, they, they make, uh, sort of DIY home improvement type videos. And like, I feel like I, I know I couldn't. You know, uh, put down the, the dry pack and slope it to like put a shower pan in. Uh, but I feel like I could, you know, I feel like I've been part of that. And that's, uh, that's, that's very exciting. But, you know, there's also, uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there. And that's the, that's the, the sort of wonderful, it's a wonderful thing about a, a platform like that where anyone can upload literally anything. Right. Yes. So is that the segue? I was trying to serve it up. Maybe I did a bad job. No, 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 no. It's great. It's great. So I don't know, Pete. What have you been watching on YouTube recently? <laughs> okay. So I because you were also talking about a whole bunch of other things that could have been the segue, such as, you know, loading yourself up on tech with technology so that you could make, you know, your own version of professional level uh video at home. And uh, the challenges of that, the limitations of that, your own self-conception as a prosumer is what you called yourself, right? Uh, I want to say, okay, prosumer. <laughs> but when I, I've had this topic in the hopper for a little while, and all I needed was a week where Mark was away and Matt was too ex- uh, exhausted to protest. <laughs> and we could talk about one of my... Uh, more interesting recent YouTube rabbit holes. There's been is, a coup. There's been a coup <laughs> on the podcast. It's not a coup. It's 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 a quorum issue. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that I'd like to talk about the rotoscope animations of Joel Haver, uh, who you may who, who is who is not. It doesn't sound quite as. Uh, I don't think in practice it's quite as obscure as it probably sounds because this is a guy who I came across because. He did a promotional video for Elden Ring when Elden Ring came out. And I've been playing Elden Ring. And uh, and if I sound a little bit defeated, that's why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, here and there. I mean, I've been going through it very slowly. It's like an hour a week, basically. It, that means it's the game's going to take me 17 years or something along those lines. <laughs> but um, but it's uh, but Joel Haver has made a couple of animation. He's a sketch comic and director and kind of uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe him as fundamentally a comedian because he's a little bit more uh, kind of intensely uh, self-reflective than I think most comedians that I know. Um, but I also would describe him as a, as a storyteller. I think that, you know, I think I think short short films might be the right way to talk about it, but they're mostly funny. Um even when they're sad. And uh, and he has a couple of different series of animations that he's made using a DIY, what I refer to as semi-automated rotoscoping technique. And these are one called uh, the RPG series and then the sci-fi series. And so you might have come across them because they are kind of kitschy jokes about video games. So that that's the sort of the sort of audience space that this lives within is online comedy about video games. So he has a sketch uh, where it follows two gangsters who are presumably in a Grand Theft Auto game who are, 
conveniently talking about the secrets of their evil plan while they're being tailed by a person, like a player character. And, and whenever the player character gets within 40 feet of them, they like look behind them and repeat the same. Did you hear hear something? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Must've been my imagination. Exactly. And so like the, the player character does increasingly absurd things like crash their car into the wall, like run, like get stuck facing a dumpster, like walking into it over and over again, all sorts of little things that you would do in, in a video game. So it's video game oriented comedy right but the thing that i'm interested in most is this rotoscopic animation style and one of the things that he did that's really cool is he made a video explaining how to do it which i thought was such an interesting and novel thing to do that it's like i made all of these animations here's how i did it and if you do this you can do it too and there are other people online who have done i guess what they would refer to as joel haver style rotoscoping it involves some program i didn't remember the details of it for the purpose of this podcast i uh, you should go to joel haver's youtube channel and watch his video on how he does his animations if you want to know how he does them uh but the long and the short of it is that he uses a program to and he 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 exports video clips short video clips as images and he hand draws, you know, using, uh, you know, maybe a mouse and a computer, uh, a, a sort of tracing of a keyframe in this little passage. So some frame that has the characteristics of the shot that's about to happen, right? If somebody's talking, it's one where every part of the person is visible. Their eyes are open. Their mouth is open. You know, you can sort of see all the all of the stuff and then draw over that in a sort of cartoon style and then uh you know the next time the shot changes significantly draw it again and then this computer helps him by overlaying you know this drawing style and animating it across all the frames of photography so i i had assumed that it was entirely automated that it was like the the i don't know detect edges filter in photoshop or something like that you know and but there's a manual there's a manual process there's a manual component and a uh and an automated component and that kind of accounts for the uh some of the uniqueness of the style exactly so so because he's using keyframes and it's automated then there are places where it breaks and there are places where somebody's eye might move on their face or a motion blur will happen where somebody's mouth becomes like a straight line and then catches up with them. Uh, you know, little things like that, little artifacts. And then to build the aesthetic, he puts a VHS filter over all of it. Sure. <laughs> so, um, and, and so it, it, there's a, I feel like there's a few different major dimensions of what's happening that I find interesting. And I would encourage everybody to watch these, uh, you know, the RPG series is like what, you know, playing a new RPG for the first time. And it's a joke about the sort of casual murder that you engage in when you play an RPG, <laughs> like killing a random rat and like, you know, killing a <laughs> random guy who looks ugly. Right. And like uh, and it goes into an ex- the series goes into an extended question of what an enemy is. And, and an enemy is is outwardly observably represented by having a health bar. <laughs> like, like when you see a regular NPC in a video game and you're not meant to kill them, they have no health bar. But if you see an enemy, they have a health bar. But what's revealed, right, revealed in the series is that people with health bars above their heads are really enemies to themselves. And they have to kind of get in touch with themselves and, and kind of find their own value in order to stop being enemies. Uh, and it involves this guy kind of replaying this game after he realizes the horrifying consequences of his actions. Right. Uh, and his sort of his sort of uh, ne'er do well, you know, his sort of, you know, carefree 
uh, I guess I would say like no reservations, violence and the horrible consequences it has. And then it goes in some interesting spots. And then he has a sci-fi series that's about the emperor, the galactic emperor, who is a kind of a uh, very a Burkean aristocrat uh-huh. in the sense that he's like a docile cow of a person. He's a stoner who is high all the time and uh, thus can't doesn't really care that much about stuff. Like, but at the same time, you get the sense that that comes with it a certain amount of wisdom. Uh, but it also means he's utterly easy to uh, manipulate. And so it's um, a, it's a mostly a comedy between the emperor and the emperor's uh, kind of retainer, who is this horrible, sneering, screeching alien who wants him to kill everybody. And so it's this very chill emperor and this crazy vizier and I sire murder them, that kind of thing. And there's a there's a whole thing about um about like homophobia in it and um anyway they they're, they're a good series and so you should definitely watch them I thought well they, yeah the- i mean i thought they were funny yeah. i like i i appreciated them i i want to talk a little bit about this stuff uh is that okay if we do that here on the podcast where we talk about stuff like this oh yeah for sure why would it not be okay are you making a comment about me <laughs> making a comment about you um no the the uh i just i just realized the stupidity of what i was saying as it was coming out of my mouth is all <laughs> i mean I feel like that's all in the spirit of the topic. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, once you watch the videos, it all fits. So, like, to to what extent do you feel like this, the the funny comes from the sketches? Oh, what's the form content divide here? Is I yes. guess is is I guess what I'm what I'm saying yes. because like I want to talk a little bit about like some concepts like playing to the top of your intelligence. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about like what I broadly consider to be the adult swim style of comedy, you know, okay. the, like the, the, the loose sort of improvisational, like it's around a theme, but the, like, it, you know, it comes out of, it comes out of improv, uh, you know, and, and has kind of like a shaggy aspect to it, you know? Um, right. Cause it's like, it's not, not it's not like uh his girl friday or something like that the comedy is not like the of the you know howard hawks uh style um the howard hawks variety it's it's of the upright citizens brigade sort of variety right um i mean i guess so yeah although once you start saying that it's like yeah, no, I'm of- sorry. I don't mean to import a whole bunch of uh, yeah. weird stuff about the politics of improv theaters that I really don't know or care about uh, yeah, into, yeah, exactly. into into the thing. It's just that's when I'm familiar with. That's the one I'm I know. Um, so let's just call it the like the the kind of the improv comedy style, you know, like, all right, we need one one non geographical location. No, let, 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 before we even start on that, just I want to just stop this because it's giving me a migraine. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's uh, redefine away from. I'm like, very fond improv. of you. I'm very fond of you too, Pete. That's, <laughs> okay. I too enjoy our talks. <laughs> so um, I'm going to attempt. To, I'm going to attempt to make this a more useful comparison, uh, and one that I'm not going to end up just arguing and quibbling about diminutia for the whole time. Um, so, like the idea of a joke being that you have a setup and a punchline, and the there's a difference between the setup and the punchline, and that difference is what sort of whatever it is that's creating comedy it's in the difference between the setup and the punchline and then another style wherein you are you don't necessarily pre-plan what the setup of the punchline is but there's a difference between what you sort of set up to do and what you end up doing and you sort of surprise yourself and the same time as you're surprising others um and i would say that that might be 
something that you would qualify as improvisational. Uh, but it could also be scripted when you sort of, sort of, so like in the office, you know, a lot less of that is improvised than people might think. Um, but it has that improv style, right. That's, that's attributable, that sort of thing. And I mean, there's game in both of them and all that stuff. Well, that's, Um, you know, that style, um, yeah, that, that style where it's, it's really, it's about, yeah, it's about creating a contrast of expectations rather, rather mm -hmm. than a contrast of, of, of what, of, of setup and punchline. What is it? A, a, a kind of a more manicured yeah. or like more managed contrast. It's kind of an unmanaged contrast that, that you set up and the, the, you know, the, the tension that's exploited between, you know, a set of expectations that is frustrated or f- fulfilled in an unexpected way. <laughs> right. That, oh yeah. 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 I, I, you know what? I'm a hundred percent on board with, I think what, what you said, you said, um, un, un, was it unmanaged, um, Manage expectations and unmanaged expectations. Is that yeah. how you put it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's like that. I think that's dead on and brilliant. So I'm I apologize for being rude before, Matt. I don't want <laughs> I don't want anything to ever come between us. But it's just like let's not let's not have an improv one on one conversation. We can avoid it. I've just had so many of them in my life, and oh. with all the improv theaters kind of flopping around like airless fish, you know, and like a <laughs> waterless fish in an air in a world of air. Uh, it's just a tough time to talk about improv, I guess, but, uh, fair, fair enough, you know, in, in, in a waterless, uh, in, you know, in a waterless world though, the one lunged fish is King. That's true. That's true. So I guess we're going to see who wins the, the sweepstakes <laughs> of life returning to normal, right. And becomes the new King of comedy for, uh, for the world. But yeah, nature yeah, is, I, yeah. Nature is healing. Uh, nature is healing. Go see, go, go pay $5 to see improv in a live <laughs> No, please do. It, it, it is going on, you know, and just, just take adequate precautions and stuff. But, um, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's sad that what is, what everyone's been through. But, um, I will I will say this. I think that when you're saying what's the relationship to the form and what's going on, I think that animating it does a few important things. One of which is to create the sense of place and spectacle that is, uh, useful in investing people in what's going on. I think that you could do the same sketches and not have them with the rotoscope animation. They wouldn't be nearly as effective, even though the little moments of sort of sensitive self-discovery would be mostly the same because the expectations are, are created in a specific way by the look and feel of the animation. And then the ways that the animation betrays its expectations and the content betrays its expectations sort of either reinforces or adds texture to these comedic moments and the dramatic moments of kind of recognition and, and seeing things change. So, um, you know, the, the animation being sort of on purpose, not very good, yeah. but at the same time, yeah, yeah. But at the same time being appealing to a sort of specific style that makes it feel old fashioned. Well, by um, not, but by not being good, by not being good, quote unquote, right? Yeah, like yeah. it, it calls attention to its handmaidenness. And I feel like the handmaidenness yes, yes. is like, is an important characteristic of it. That is, you know, that's kind of part of the, part of the creative project here. And you said, you said something just now, like you use the word discovery. You may, yeah. you might have used the word self discovery. And I think another way of putting the dichotomy that I, the, or I, I, I suppose I should say dialectic. Um, what do, what do we do for dialectic, Pete? We don't, we, we drink on discourse. I'm, I'm not, sh- <laughs> I'm not sure what we do for dialectic overthrow That's, the government, sh- maybe. Um, <laughs> but the, like, apparently anybody could do that these days. <laughs> oh, um, the, I'll get my bison hat. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Uh, essential oils. <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, hey, look, um, sorry, I've been sitting in this position. I'm sitting on the uh, the UV light, so let me just uh, let me just you know move my my gonads off of the UV light and uh, and continue the talk. I, I another way of getting at the split that I that I was kind of fumbling around for before to 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 kind of you know as as you sort of rightly wanted to put put some slight more rigor around the idea of like what is improvisational instead of just me throwing out that term as though we all agree on what it means is that like um whose self discovery and when does it happen right mm-hmm. and if you so if you think about like a, an improvised performance of of any kind, you know, a musical improvised performance, right? Like there's an aspect of discovery in that, like the, the performer doesn't know what they're going to play, you know? And like you have a repertoire, you have a library of norms, you have a, you know, a like genre expectations, you have, you know, um, influences. Like there are a lot of things that go into that. It's not just like sort of reading off the ticker tape of consciousness, but like, but you, you are in some sense surprised by, by what you do. You know, and the, the, I, I found, cause I'm, I'm like you, Pete, a veteran of a lot of acting classes that improvisation is used as a means of self discovery. You know, mm, that yeah. it's, that it's used as a, when, when you do improvisation in the course of rehearsing a play, like you're, you're not going to like make up new words to the play. You're going to, you're going to like, there's actually a mechanism for finding you in the union. If you don't <laughs> say the words that the author has written in, you know, in the play, it's not like you're going to, uh, it's not like you're going to rewrite, you know, I don't know, whoever, uh, one, you know, one of the greats, uh, uh, Tom Stoppard or Neil Simon yeah. or, or uh, um, I don't know. I was trying to think of a third that was unexpected, but I couldn't do it. You see, that's what happens when you're in improvisational <laughs> sound. I was trying to create a world a rule of three and I failed. I couldn't think of a third person that anyone ever does in comedy on stage because there's only ever two people that they do, which isn't entirely inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> so right, Peter Schaffer, they do, they do, uh, Peter Schaffer. Oh, good, yes. And, yeah. and Equus is from a certain point of view, very bad. And th- so that would have been a good contrast in I, the, in Schaffer the- I was talking about, but sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't he also do some like wacky sketch comedy? And then also the one about horse penis. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he did black, black comedy. That's no, you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, yes, black comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah where yeah. the, uh, well, so actually, that's a, that's a really good one. Like, th- that whole, I saw that in a, in a double bill with Real Inspector Hound um, in London once. And it really, it, it actually, like, Real, Real Inspector Hound, like, Stoppard's comedy is actually very good at this. He's done all the discovery before, you know, mm-hmm. he's polished it to a high gloss. And he's created a kind of mechanism for bringing about the discovery in the audience, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of a lot of uh, traditional stand-up. I, I mean, what is stand-up tradition? There, there are many. That, but mm-hmm. a lot of what we think of as stand-up kind of works like this. And someone has has written jokes. Now, they, that could mean a lot of things. That could mean a room full of people has written <laughs> jokes and like you know texted them to them, or like you know it could mean that they've like you know BSed on stage uh, and like taken the good parts. It could mean that they sat at a at a yellow legal pad and like scribbled out stuff and like refined it in a kind of more traditional like novelistic writing rewriting process but that like there's material that's been that's been set up and in the that the in the audience you know the 
the discovery that happens is something that's that's engineered in the improv in in the improv style. What I'm trying what I'm trying to talk about the the defining characteristic of what I'm trying to talk about is that the 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 discovery, both the self discovery, the kind of the discovery of the hidden truth, but also mm-hmm. the discovery of the contrast between expectation and reality, um, mm-hmm. happens simultaneously for for the performer and for the audience. Right, um, right, right. You know, and like in its most hackneyed form, there are a lot of ways to manipulate that we've seen a lot of them you know done well and badly but like the 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 interesting the interesting thing here right is that that moment of discovery it, the the interesting thing uh in in the work of mr haver uh and mm-hmm. pete when i haver uh you know i'm gonna be <laughs> um the the interesting thing uh that was for zach um the the interesting thing about this is that 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 moment that sort of ephemeral moment, and it, it happens in like live, you know, theater productions that you pay five dollars to go see in a in a basement somewhere, right? Like um, that ephemeral moment is then kind of enshrined by the painstaking manual work of you know drawing of hand drawing. I mean, in Photoshop, of mouse drawing with your mm-hmm. hand, the uh, you know the outlines like inking the or tracing and penciling and inking the uh, digital version, the animated version of the live action video that that was shot of the you know of the characters doing their improv, and it does something to it. You know, it does something to it to to put that kind of painstaking edifice around um, the, the kind of the fumbling towards the ephemeral moment of discovery when, uh, when the kind of the, the contrast, when the expectation um, the somehow frustrated expectation is discovered. And, you know, in so doing like something one hopes more profound is, is discovered at the same time. Um and taking and, and, and building this, this, uh, big edifice around it, um, and kind of freezing it in, in, in time in a particular mm. way. And that, you know, that was the contrast, I mean, in, of the kind of the form and the content that struck me the most watching it. Yeah. And I feel like it connects with one of the main traditions of rotoscoping, which is this sort of psychedelic tradition. I, I, when I was thinking about huh. this, and again, I made, I was making this up. I've not read any books on rotoscoping. I have not, you know, I don't know the official terminology, but in my head, I built out a few different traditions of rotoscoping and kind of what it means, you know, or like what it's used for and how, how the works in which it has been involved historically have influenced each other in clusters. And one of them is psychedelic works of, questioning and reinvestigating the self as a phenomenon. Right. And I'm thinking primarily of a scanner darkly and waking life as Mm. the two movies that stick out to me along these lines. I'm sure there's a lot more, Uh, but the notion that the exterior view of a person is represented in a photograph doesn't reflect the experience of being human adequately enough. And so the truer person is, you know, luminous Right. Like Yoda would say, you know, luminous beings are we not this dark matter or whatever it is. Right. Um, and is is sort of malleable and the self is kind of frayed along the edges and can shift and change. Uh, and so it feels related to that tradition. One of the other traditions of rotoscoping, though, that it's also related to is the uh, oh, I want to make sure the, the Rathke tradition, which is the sort of heavy metal 
and I mean like like lowercase h, lowercase m, but also uppercase h, uppercase m to an extent. But stuff like I mean, if you've seen his, you know, the uh, the the Rocky Baskin Lord of the Rings stuff, right? Mm, and again, mm-hmm. I, I'm probably saying it wrong their names because I only recently found out they were two people, and I thought it was one guy. Um, uh, Ralph Bas- Baxi is the animator whose style is uh, is in question here, and he did Baxin did Lord of the Rings with. Uh, oh, is rank right? Or you know what? I'm not even gonna. St- I'm not even gonna. Uh, I'm not even gonna go into it anymore. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, didn't, so- I didn't realize that Louis and Dresner were two two people. That, you know, that's uh, you know, that's and I've been I've been reading the back of those wine bottles for years. Yeah, <laughs> but at any rate, there are there is a dark fantasy tradition, and when I say it's like heavy metal, I'm thinking of stuff like you know Ronnie James Dio and Led Zeppelin and and Tolkien and Bar and you know Conan the Barbarian iconography. You know, we're talking about airbrushed Pegasi on the sides of vans and stuff, and like you know bare chested barbarians on mountaintops and chainmail bikinis and whatnot, and all of their various deep flaws and uh, and and uh, sensorial provocations. But uh, but that rotoscoping has a place there that I would say is almost performing the opposite function, wherein because when you're thinking about it in terms of animation and in terms of sequential art, like narrativized sequential art, I'm going back to my um, understanding comics here. Mm. This is on the side of the continuum that is away from iconic and more towards representational because well first of all what are you doing when you're rotoscoping when you're rotoscoping you're taking video uh, or photographs of people moving Mm -hmm. and you're using the movement of people usually by tracing over it uh or um to create the movement of animated uh, figures Mm -hmm. and you you of course can change it you can be inspired by it but the way that people move is very different than the way the animated characters often move. And so rotoscoped animation has specific look and feel to it in its various applications. And I think one of its characteristics is not quite the uncanny Valley, but an alienation that comes from it being difficult to watch. Hmm. Like there is too much detail. Like we are, our brains are not designed to look at an entire person. You know, our eyes are not programmed, as it were, like our uh, the process of vision does not involve taking in an entire person all at once. Right. It involves looking at specific things and then the brain processes it and puts together the total image. And so with a with a, a movie or TV show or whatever or a YouTube video, you know, the camera is kind of guiding the eye as to what to look at and is is forming the image in the mind of what it is that you're actually seeing by presenting you with, you know, points of focus that are sort of drawing your attention. Uh, in, a, in a big painting, you don't look at it all at once, which is why in various sorts of portraiture, there's actually multiple different perspectives that are all happening at the same time, right? Like you can look at a person's face and you're actually seeing a different perspective than if you look at their lap, but you don't realize it when you're looking at the painting because, you know, if it's, if it's, you oh, know, you're not even, you're not even talking about cubism. <laughs> you're talking no, 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 about like, actually real, real, you know, uh, uh, realistic portraiture or quote, exactly, quote unquote, exactly. realistic. But you can take it even to the point of cubism. I mean, there's a whole continuum of that aspect too, of like, where does the eye go? But yeah, even in realistic portraiture, you're not going to make a portrait that looks exactly like how a person would look because it's adjusting for where your eye is going right? in how it handles perspective. I mean, not all the time, but in a lot of the stuff that you'll see in the nice museums. Uh, <laughs> as, as and so rotoscoping animation 
presents an extra challenge because it's giving you the whole person, which is not actually what you're used to looking at. And so it kind of makes I don't necessarily think it's like Ver from Duke's effect where it intellectualizes it. It's more the opposite. It presents you with extra work that makes what you're doing harder and and and, and I think deepens a certain sensation associated with it, uh, which I think is why it works well for extreme violence, right? Like it just is overwhelming to watch rotoscope figures murder each other. I think uh-huh. in, in preparing for this podcast, I sent a uh, link over to a movie called The Spine of Night. <laughs> Uh, which, Good name, uh, uh, yeah. super super metal name, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is an extension of a viral hit rotoscoped animation from uh, 2013 that was uh, called Exodion, I think. Um, and uh, is that what it was called? I'll have to double check that. And uh, but it's by a guy named Morgan Galen King, by his own YouTube t- channel called Morgan King. And uh, I know I'm kind of going all over the place right now, but the point being that there are other people who are doing rotoscoping right now, right? And they are using the connection of rotoscoping to these old traditions to uh, as sort of a sampling kind of phenomenon to create art that has resonances, top-down resonances that might not have been available if you weren't working for from previously existing cultural matter. Um, and I think Joel Haver is interesting because – the method he's using is accessible and and yes, it takes a while, but not as much as like Morgan King's technique probably takes. That stuff is probably immensely, immensely time consuming. Um, but also he is embracing the flaws in it in the process, the flaws that are engendered in the process. He embraces in a comic self-discovery style of the sort that you're talking about. That again, yes, Upright Citizen Brigade, totally shouldn't have lashed out at you for saying that. Makes total sense as we reflect on oh, it. That's just the one um, that I've. It's the one that I've heard of. I know. I just the improv stuff. I, someday we need to like talk about improv again when we have new things to say. But I feel like the uh, the the caterpillar got itself in a cocoon, and I don't know what's going to pop out of that thing. And I hope I hope the people who are working on it right now are, are doing good. And I feel bad about not. And not being out there because I'm, you know, I'm not doing it and I'm raising a kid and, and I'm living in the suburbs and it's a strange sort of alienation in itself. Perhaps I should make a rotoscoped animation about my own detachment from myself and kind of sense of dissociation. Uh, like you could imagine that Bo Burnham's inside could have been rotoscoped or he could have done a rotoscoped section. Oh, that would um, have been I mean, that would have been interesting. Like the yeah. the. It it reminds me like the the what the immediate commentary sequence of I was of uh, Bo Burnham's inside where he does this sort of loop where he talks about the video and then puts it in the corner and then talks about that and puts it in the corner and becomes this kind of mise en abime to yes. like you know uh, of of sort of commentary and this is like this is what like the internet is or this is what sort of social media is this is what like I don't know discussion reply threads are or something mm-hmm. like that uh, that he's talking about reminded me like the the how I animated this video uh, thing from from Mr. Haver uh, is the um, was had a thumbnail that was exactly like that. That was like just him and the the him on a screen with 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 him on a screen. Uh, you know, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, um, and that like it it does. I mean, it really does sort of uh, yeah. It, uh, what what do you think the VHS? Uh, thing uh, is doing there. It's really interesting because he says it judges it up, right? And and that's a wonderful example of the death of the author, or in the <laughs> sense of like the the idea that intentionality is is 
very, very limited in how it can explain art because he can't explain why he's doing it. He's just following a creative impulse and seeing that it's cool. Um, I mean, I think that when you're saying he zhuzhes, it zhuzhes it up. What does that mean? Well, I um, think one one thing that it does is it creates motion. One one of the things about mm. this is that there aren't there isn't motion in all parts of the frame, right? Like there isn't mm. necessarily a ton of visual interest, and like the the automated part of this process is making the cartoon figures move in kind of stick figureish ways. Like maybe the the mouth or something will move, but like the the body position of the uh, of the figure won't move naturalistically, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that and that's weird. It's kind of stilted and it's it's odd. Um, and you know, you can't eliminate that completely, but one of the things that the VHS effect does, like there are two parts of the VHS effect. One is like interlacing where it makes it appear as though there are kind of lines, alternating lines of dark and light. And mm-hmm. this is how, you know, to save bandwidth, to make them possible to, to transmit with less information. This is how, uh, television pictures were transmitted for a lot of time of the 480, uh, lines, you know, on a, on a CRT television, you could transmit, I think, 240 at once and then the, the other 240 and you would only replace half the image at the time, at a time. And it kind of accounts for some of the, the, you know, unique visual characteristics that we associate with, uh, film and TV that we watch that you and I, Pete, being of our generation, watched as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing that this, like, uh, effect has is kind of rolling bars. Do you remember the tracking knob and adjusting the tracking oh, yeah. knob? To, oh, yeah. So it's like bad tracking. It's like yeah. a, you know, it looks like kind of a wave of a like differently saturated band kind of rolls down. Um, and between those, between those two things, the kind of the interlacing effect and the, the, the tracking effect, um, it creates visual interest. It creates motion in parts mm-hmm. of the frame that don't have motion it also creates a rhythm in a weird way because as the bands you know the kind of the lightly saturated bands sort of roll down the screen like you experience time because there's like a beginning middle and end of that you know of that kind of journey down the yeah. uh j- journey to the bottom of the screen um <laughs> It's my favorite RPG. And that, uh, you know, that, that, so it creates, yeah, it, uh, so it's like there's a visual interest thing and there's also a weird kind of rhythmic element to it, I guess, that, that, uh, makes it, makes it compelling. I mean, those are two kind of zhuzhes, uh, yeah. that, that are happening. One, one moment, it recalls, it recalls a moment, uh, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but every day after Thanksgiving, traditionally, and I have not, been going every day, especially over the last every year over the last 10 years in particular, and especially over the last few years. But for most of my life, the day after Thanksgiving was the day that my family went to go cut down a Christmas tree. Turkey, and Turkey Boxing Day. Let's call it Turkey Boxing Turkey Day. Turkey Boxing Day. Yes. Turkey Boxing Day was the day that we would fight turkeys for sport, but they no kicking because that's for that's for sissies. Right? Like, uh, <laughs> no, no. Um, it's, it's that. Yeah, my, our brains are all in a weird psychedelic place after watching all this rotoscoped animation and or doing all this Eurovision commentary, which is sort of two sides of the same coin, I suppose. But uh, but we would go cut down a Christmas tree. And for a bunch of these years, I was in either New Haven or New York. Uh, and and I guess to an extent, you know, Cambridge and Somerville, Massachusetts. So, you know, pretty densely populated urban settings. 
and in particular, working very hard and not getting a lot of sleep and not caring for myself very much, which is just sort of a general trend uh, that continues into parenthood and into various phases of adulthood, however they shall proceed. But uh, but I would go to this farm with my family out in, you know, southwestern or, or western New Jersey. A, it's, it's, a specific one. Yeah, we went to a specific one. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm not even going to say where it is because I don't want you all to swarm it because it's our special place. But when we had picked out the tree and cut it down, there was a moment where my family would go into the gift shop and I would find this intolerable because the gift shop was pretty low ceilinged and just packed with Christmas decorations. My family's very big. I have four sisters. And uh, as time went on, you started bringing in, you know, uh, boyfriends and brothers-in-law and stuff. And uh, and it just it just being in that enclosed space after, you know, being in kind of a high tension enclosed space for a long time, I would really relish standing outside the gift shop and just kind of looking out at the hills uh, for a few minutes while everybody else was in the gift shop. And this was like a profound moment for me for a number of times, you know, in these various years, uh, just sort of a moment of peace, you know, that sort of crisp autumn air and just kind of looking out over the trees. And there was an unfathomable beauty to experiencing it. And I can't capture it in a photograph. Like if I had a photograph of it, actually, here's an interesting side side measure to this. Uh, my senior prom, right? I had a disposable camera at my senior prom. I feel like aesthetically this is linked kind of to the various things we're talking about in sure. terms of DIY art. And, uh, and I never got the shots developed, um, probably out of fear. <laughs> I don't know why. And I said put it in a trunk where it stayed for probably – 15 or 20 years. Huh. I'm not sure exactly when I actually did it. And then eventually I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's get these pictures developed. Sure. <laughs> Let's see what we get. And I got two pictures that came out of the camera that were at all, uh, at all pictures. And they were both of just walls of trees that I had apparently taken from our sort of weekend after prom, uh, where we had gone as friends, where a bunch of my friends had brought their dates, but I did not bring my date cause my date and I were not together. Uh, and, uh, and, and Me I just, too, Pete. I went to two proms. I went junior and senior year. I went to prom with uh, and and I had a date who was uh, who was female, but but we were just buds. Yeah, yeah, you of know? course. I think. I mean, I went. Yeah, I went to two proms with friends of mine, and they were awesome and continue to be awesome. And I'm sure that I've embarrassed myself in front of one or both of them many times. And apologies if they listen to this podcast. I'm really sorry for the times that I embarrassed myself. Um, but. Um, but uh, again, this is a lot of weird gotta, feelings that Joel Hammer's work is bringing up. You gotta just be, you gotta, you gotta take the parts of you where you would say you embarrassed yourself and just love those parts of you even more. You gotta just like hold, you gotta hold your own foibles to your heart and say, you know, I see you, I see you, self. And so you're, you know? that's the VHS overlay. That's right. exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. you, you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? That there's a VHS overlay over that feeling of being on the hilltop. Right. And there's a sense in which the photograph of the woods is utterly inadequate to expressing how it felt to be looking at those woods, you know, the weekend uh, after my prom. But the fact that it's the only photograph that survived kind of makes it especially poetic um, from that whole experience. And yeah. uh, and, and that that I, I wonder whether all those other characteristics you're talking about, the motion, the way that it affects the light. Yeah. The interlacing, kind of causing you to focus and refocus on things. Some of the backgrounds in some of the Joel Haver shots, especially in the uh, the sci-fi trilogy, are really beautiful. Uh, I think I'm particularly in the second part of the RPG series where he actually goes up against the rat. Did you watch that one? No, I didn't. I I only saw the first one and it wasn't, I actually think that like developing the premise, really like digging into it, probably, probably like, uh, 
would have deepened my appreciation of it. Like if I, if I had seen those, cause like, oh, yeah. I, like I'll tell you, like from, from a subject matter point of view, Pete, I thought like, I, th- I thought a lot about sort of playing to the top of your intelligence. And it's like, okay, like the, the idea that like, oh, people behave in antisocial ways in video games. Like, yeah. oh, in the RPG, like you killed the rat. No, that's our precious pet rat. That's yeah. the, that's the kindergarten class rat. Like, why would you kill it? <laughs> why? Yeah. You know, I, like it's okay, but it's like, it's a glib point. Like it's a superficial, it's an okay point as far as it goes. It doesn't go very far. And I've heard it a lot of times before, right? Yeah. Um, oh no, you killed the enemy. That was actually my beloved son, my only son, you know, yep. like that's like, I, again, like, uh, been there, done that. But I think like developing, digging into the, digging into the material and kind of developing it, um, a little more taking it in an unexpected, in an unexpected direction. Um, I, the, the part of the, the indie RPG characters, uh, mm-hmm. not the indie RPG characters, the, the Grand Theft Auto characters, yeah. uh, one for me that I really, that I really loved that kind of took it past that to me. Like, Oh boy, isn't it funny how like, it's actually not, you're doing all kinds of things that they would notice if they would, you know, if they were actually people like, Hey, is that guy who's crashed into seven mailboxes? You think something, <laughs> something's going on with that guy behind us? Yeah. No, he's more than, he's more than, you know, two screens away. And that's, you know, that's, that's our rule. You know what they say in our business, two screens, keep it clean. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. And that like, um, it's like, okay, like that. But then the, thing that that does it like the the twist on it is that they start um is that they have talk tracks you know they have like uh have like sock phrases that they repeat over and over and over what was that what was that must have been my imagination what was that (laughs) must have been my imagination what was that i could have sworn i heard something Must have been my imagination. Could have sworn I heard something. Exactly. Could have sworn I heard something. Right. (laughs) That that was the, you know, and then that like that, there was a kind of like absurdism to it that, that went beyond the, the sort of superficial observation of like, no, you know, uh, this behavior is at odds. This behavior is at odds with, uh, with reality. I will say like there was also, so this is why I was like thinking of like playing to the top of your intelligence. Like don't, Mm -hmm. don't make jokes about stupid people being stupid, right? Like that's not, like stupid people gonna stupid it's not funny it's stupid yeah. you know and that that like even if you can create if, if you can create like a lot of tension if you can create a lot of like of farce yeah. you know around that you're not i don't know it's a it's a i think not a particularly deep well uh deep well of humor um but something something i also thought of in the in the rpg one uh, not rpg in the gta uh one i mean is gta an rpg i don't know um the uh not not uh in style i suppose but you do play a role um, i would say i would say certainly gta online is rp mm. uh and so i mean yeah so sure sure but those, enough. those games elements, like this sure. this generation of uh this generation of like super fancy games is going towards like nearly photorealistic um what like I've, I've been seeing all these things online over the last couple of weeks about like the new version of Unreal Engine and how it can like render lighting effects in real time, yeah. and that with like photorealistic accuracy, like the bounce off of walls, you know, and how it like illuminates the like the back surfaces of of objects in a room and stuff. Um, been seeing all of this stuff, and there is something sort of satisfying about reducing uh, these. Um, 
you know, uh, these video games where the cutscenes aspire to this kind of like cinematic photorealism in the, the computer animation that they're putting on screen to, uh, to the primary colors and the, like the thick, something about the thickness of the line, mm-hmm. you know, is really expressive in, uh, uh, is really expressive in this thing that I, you know, I don't know that I, I sort of responded to. So no, Pat, Pete, I didn't see, I didn't see, uh, all the details about, about the rat. Tell me, tell me about yeah, the rat. Sure. So, so the story arc of the RPG story, and again, I guess this is spoilers, but hopefully you've stopped the podcast and you've watched some of these. They're not long. This is like two minute videos. Some of them are a little bit longer. Um, some, one of them, I think the longest one's like 11 minutes. And uh, that's the summary one where they go back and do crossovers of all the stories they've done at that point. At any rate, guy starts, boots up the RPG, right? He's in prison, common place that you would start this sort of thing. And he breaks out of prison, you know, yelling, adventure awaits, huzzah! And he kills a rat, which is, of course, very similar to what you do at the beginning of a game like this to, like, get a little bit of experience, learn how to push the buttons. Sometimes you have to farm to do these sorts of things, kill lots of rats, he gets lots of XP. And then he, when he goes to the town, and of course, then he kills, you know, a guy. But let's focus on the rat. And he goes to the town, and uh, and the and he's revealed to him that the rat is the town rat, is his beloved figure, and the guy was this guy's son and was going to find the rat because the rat was lost. And so this really takes the air out of the sails of this guy. And he goes out to keep trying adventure and he gets like increasingly just like exhausted and depressed about this like task that he set out to do and the guilt he feels over the stupid decisions he's already made to the point where he stops playing the game without saving it. Right. And then there's another one where he starts from the beginning again. And this time he spares the rat, but he has no enthusiasm for the game. And he spares the rat and he spares the guy and he goes to the town. At this point, he's also met the whole thing about, oh, the people with the health bars are, are the enemies and they're their own enemies, not your enemies, that sort of thing. Um, and he, fi- yeah, he finds that uh, the town has been burned down and everybody's been slaughtered. And it's because the rat has turned evil and has a gun and is going to the castle to kill the king. Right. And uh and of course, we've learned from the previous episode that the king is not that corrupt. You know, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he's not that corrupt. And so you you like the, the guy feels so betrayed by the emotional manipulation of like sparing the rat and having this horrible thing happen that he just loses his his mind. Right. And he starts screaming and he's just sort of like running across the entire map of the game, just like screaming. Uh, and we are treated to a pretty brutal execution killing of the king by the rat which is filmed on the king's face as he like sort of defies the rat and begs for his life and you get this very very absurd image of a rat on a throne like a a little mouse guy on a throne not anthropomorphic (laughs) like with a tiny little gun who's just killed the king right and they and the guy breaks in the front door and, and gives this big dramatic speech and there's this like blinding light that fills the room and and it's like he's backlit, right? It's sort of like the guy is in silhouette, but it's also the artifacts of the VHS that are making it kind of hard to see him a little bit and kind of blurring and interpolating all the things around him, all the colors around him. And, uh, and he's like, you know, he's going to, I'm going to kill this rat. Right. And he finishes it with like a, you know, huzzah. And he goes in and he murders the rat. And it's like extremely satisfying. Um, so that's and so that's how he becomes the hero of the land, right? And uh, and then there's a third video where it's like he's become the hero and he doesn't really know how to live, 
without all this stuff. It's sort of like the Hurt Locker, except uh, except he has a wife who only has two lines of dialogue that he lives with, which is really unfortunate. Uh, he does grow a mustache. But yes, the, the point is that that the guy's dejection at because what we're talking about is a comedy of self inspection. Uh-huh. Where you're you are discovering yourself as a performer yes. at the same rate that the audience is discovering what's funny about you. And as and the animation is strengthening this effect by, first of all, not portraying you as you're seen to others, but portraying you as you might appear to yourself as like a fanta- a fantasy, you know, a luminous being. Right. Like I'm I'm a hero. I'm the hero of my story or at least like. Think about all the people who dye their hair pink or purple, you know, their heart, their soul might be pink or purple. Right. It's like so there's this idea that that there's this sort of idea of me that I don't get to fully express by how I look, uh, especially, you know, if um, if if I don't uh, if I'm not sort of super comfortable being out socially in front of tons and tons of people um, and, and the world that I live in has a luminous quality that's not reflected. And when you look at it, because if you look at it, it's just kind of crappy. Right. Um but but all of this stuff is kind of built on it on itself. And he goes through this arc where the RPG characters are investigating their lives because part of playing these games is living a very uninvestigated life right. a lot of the time. And even the places where the games do get into sort of investigating your life, they often do it in a kind of uh, rote and not and like kind of gritty and not particularly satisfying way. Um, I'm thinking, I guess, in particular of getting close to the end of The Witcher 3 and, and sort of like. I don't know. It's uh, (laughs) the relationship between the male protector and the kind of young female protected in that game. And the kind of I'm not a huge fan, I'll just say. But I don't think that I'm not think I'm supposed to be a fan. I think it's supposed to be unhappy. I think a lot of these games end with you getting a choice between bad outcomes uh, that are better than what would happen if you hadn't showed up, but are still not great. Um, And it can be pretty grim and gross. Uh, but that the degree of self-reflection that it often comes with is sometimes kind of inadequate to the scope of human self-investigation and also to the joy in the little things that people can take in themselves. I mean, I, just to jump back to something like Fallout New Vegas. Uh, did, you ever, did you ever play any of the Fallout games, Matt? I, if it begins, if the question begins, did you ever play, the answer is most okay. likely no. So so just to go way back, there's a game called Fallout New Vegas. Unless where- it's a Chopin etude. I played that, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> Huzzah. Huzzah! Um, there's a game called Fallout New Vegas, which is a post-apocalyptic nuclear war RPG. Well, it's after the nuclear holocaust, and you're walking through the wasteland of what used to be Las Vegas and the surrounding area. And there are two military factions that are vying over the area. One is the New California Republic, which is basically like the remnant. You know, not, I'm going to say the remnants because that's another faction, but like these are like what you might think of as kind of American society as it continues to exist. And then there is uh, it's a way that's recognizable. I'm not going to get into deep Fallout lore; it gets complicated. And then the other side is sort of a cosplaying group of fascists, where it's Caesar's Legion, uh, sort of taking its cue from Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. But it's a sort of uh, like sort of a slave slave society led by a uh, charismatic leader who like has gussied it all up in the aesthetic of the Roman empire um, in a way that's like horrifying and a bit credible, but also the whole thing is pretty campy and funny at times. And then the third sort of faction, a major faction is like actual Las Vegas itself and a sort of Howard Hughes style artificial intelligence that runs it. Um, And and so you have to kind of pick an outcome of a big battle. that's going to happen at the Hoover dam. And it's just like, you can, uh, these people win, 
or you can let these people win or you can let these people win. And like none of the outcomes are all that satisfying, you know, like there were reasons to like or dislike any of these groups, some of them much less defensible than others. Right. Like certainly the distance that Caesar's Legion has from reality it makes it be more of a fantasy outcome. So if you go with them, you know, yes, you're doing horrible things to people, but it doesn't feel real. Um, you know, so there's a lot of like, and also a lot of these games, you know, you take, you take pleasure in fantasizing about doing terrible things. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Uh, but the outcome of it is like, to the extent that your war never changes is like the fallout mantra. Right. And the extent to which you investigate your own, uh, motives is rooted very much in big picture ideas of the sort of awfulness of the world and not like little picture ideas like you see in the Joel Haver stuff about like my wife keeps asking for wheels of cheese. I bought her. I got her every wheel of cheese in the game. I made a giant pile of all the wheels of cheese in the game in the lawn. She keeps still asking for wheels of cheese because she only has two lines of dialogue. I guess I'll live with it. Right. Like, like that is, that is more. And again, I don't necessarily think that like making fun of your wife asking for things is a very current or relevant style of humor. Um, uh, because certainly, you know, yeah, but uh, that's not really, that's not really what it's about. It's, it's no. about a kind of a frustrated wish. I mean, ultimately the frustrated expectation is the, is the wish that the wish that you could escape, right? Like the wish that yeah. you could live in the, the, live in the game, the wish that you could have these, you know, these interactions that are, are, you know, I don't know, somehow mo- moderated enough to be, uh, to be exciting, to be dramatically interesting. And yet, you know, sort of safe enough that they, uh, uh, that you're not actually going to get your hand chopped off or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and and there's also questions of just uh, the pleasures of real life not really being available. Mm. You know, I think having been married now for you know almost, I guess four and a, well, a little over four and a half years, it is pretty funny the like the sort of dating sims that happen in video games and like how you can like end up married to somebody in some of these games. Um, because it's like it feels so, sometimes it feels transgressive, right? And sometimes it's like inappropriate, and and also most of the time it's like incredibly unrealistic. It, it not in, only in the sense of like separating you from reality, but like it doesn't even partially resemble having a relationship with another human being. Um, and then you think about what the impact of your long term relationship is on your life, right? And it's it's pretty funny <laughs> the idea that like you know. In, uh, and I'm thinking of video games. I don't want to spoil the plots of like recent games, but you know, like you romance somebody in what Skyrim or something. I don't even remember. Um, and uh, and it's like they live at your house, and maybe they come with you a place, and then you like wander around and do all sorts of stuff, and you never talk to them. It's like that in of itself is saying something about a relationship. Mm. Um, and and the game can't really investigate that. Uh, I think I think the way Joel Haver says it is. It would be nice to have some sort of intimate mini game that I could play. <laughs> and just the notion of an intimate mini game. And of course, he's using it as a sort of a salacious way. But there's a deeper truth there to the sort of intimate mini games of life. It, it brings me back to the my favorite one. And I told you which one was my favorite one or the one I thought was the most interesting and important. Yeah, you could. Right? Yeah. And let's let's close here because this yeah. I, I was so tickled by this one. Yeah, this is the one where what if fantasy characters made movies about the real world, like right. our world, right? And it's uh, it's a YouTube collaboration with another performer, another uh, content creator, where he's playing an actor trying to audition for the part of Man at Bank. 
and he appears to be some sort of drow. Like he's like a dark elf <laughs> and uh, he's from a world of high fantasy and he's auditioning in front of like an ogre or orc. Right. Who's, uh, and uh, and the orc has to sort of coach him through the emotional reality and subtext of his character, Man at Bank. I mean, you tell me about the impression you got as a professional actor of what that process. Well, is I like. mean, like a lot of things are being a lot of things are being sort of sent up all at the all at the same time. They kind of the weird uh the weird interactions between casting directors and actors um auditioning is a terrible way to to select for you know fitness for the job of being an actor because what you do in in an audition is not acting you know it's it's not um certainly not uh by any standard that like see that resembles the actual job that you're going to perform on camera or on stage or on you know i don't know a children's birthday party or whatever like uh it's not it's this kind of artificial environment that like is made to bear certain resemblances to the uh to the actual job but really fundamentally deep down is a is a very different thing so it's a it's a, i suppose the most terrible form of selecting actors except i guess for all the others uh and that uh so that you know that whole like weird thing of like no the thing you have to understand about this guy the casting the casting director like giving the actor shop talk you know right. the thing you have to understand about these guys just it's just deeply sad all the time and, like <laughs> n- nothing really ever goes his way and like he asks for something and doesn't get it and he has to go on and he like tries to do something and he doesn't accomplish it and he has to go on so like pretty much everything he says like the subtext you know Right, like with the the acting yeah. shop talk, the subtext, like uh, pretty much everything that it says is the subtext is like uh, I, uh, I I'm uh, I'm not sure whether anything I care about matters. And the guy, you know, the guy does another read of his thing. It's like, can I? I'd I'd like to open a new bank account with a debit card, please. <laughs> you know, I'd like to pay for the debit card. Yes, exactly. you know, yeah. The I mean, the idea. There's a bunch of kind of funny reversals there. One is that like in drama, we do things that are dramatically interesting. You know, we, we it's not not it's not about every day it's about kind of cathartic or decisive yeah. moments in people's lives and it's like I'd, I'd like to open a new bank account with a debit card please <laughs> and then like and then the second read is like i'd like to open a new bank account with a debit card please <laughs> He, he raises his bow at the bank teller and it's like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, what do you have a bow? Or, yeah, they don't have bows there. They don't, you know, they don't hunt boy. The, 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 the thrill of battle doesn't, uh, doesn't course through their veins. You know? Oh, man. It's great. It's great. And if you watched all the way to the end, Matt, if you had watched his sort of recap at the end of it, that guy does eventually get. A uh, a part in the movie about the mobsters. Oh, nice! He's like, that's that's me in the movie. That's me. In the-. And he's like standing, and the movie's playing in a tavern, <laughs> and it, like people are like walking past the TV to go to the bathroom, and it's like they have to go to the bathroom now, but like they're going to see it's me in the movie. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and he's like so excited <laughs> that he has this like bit part in the like uh, the whole operation is run by Tony Lazuto. Who's there? What's that? <laughs> Must have been my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks Pete for podcasting. We'll be back next week with more overthinking and podcast. What was that? What? Must have been my imagination. It's probably just the wind. Yeah. <laughs> It's probably just the win. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web. What's that? Whoa. Must have been my imagination. It's probably just the win. Must have been my imagination. Probably just the win. <laughs> <laughs> At overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. 
it probably doesn't deserve. Okay, so my categories of rotoscoping, here we go, right? The first one is like, hey, you know what's cool? Ballet, right? Okay. And that's like when they want to put ballet in cartoons. And that includes all the He-Man stuff where he like runs and jumps and stuff and all the Snow White stuff and all that, yeah. right? And then there's, of course, the psychedelic self-discovery stuff, which also doubles as the sci-fi stuff, the Philip K. Dick stuff that we talked about. And then there's like the heavy metal stuff that we talked about. And then the fourth one is if you're making a movie about animals and you want people to be in it, mm. there's this whole style that's in like the Rats of Nim and in American Tale where like the people are rotoscoped and thus like don't fit with the animated aesthetic of the animal creatures. Um, but I guess we should have the fifth one, which is like Prince of Persia, which is like taking pictures of your brother in a parking lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> fighting with a broom handle. And that's, yeah, how, yeah. The, that's how the fencing Get animation. Over here. <laughs> <laughs>